turn to the book of Acts chapter 8. We're going to keep cruising through the book of Acts. We took a break for about the last two weeks, but we're going to jump back in and continue to look at what the Holy Spirit is doing through the lives of believers in the early church. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go to God's Word. Lord, we thank you again uh, for your written word that you've given us. Lord, we thank you that you have indeed given us the words of eternal life. And Father, I pray that as we dig into your word this morning, Lord, that we would be encouraged. Father, I pray that we would be uh, instructed. And Father, I uh, am looking forward to some questions that um, that we usually ask uh, that are going to be answered in Acts chapter 8. And so, God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and uh, Father's hearts open to what your word says. And Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm actually really excited about uh, this message out of Acts chapter 8. There's a handful of things that uh, that I have wrestled with before, and uh, it was really nice to spend this week kind of getting to the bottom of them and, uh, and getting some answers that I was very satisfied with uh, in Acts chapter 8. If you remember, uh, the early church starts after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells his apostles to wait in Jerusalem until he sends the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 1, 8 says, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? This is a little review time. So a little head nod gets us through the review faster. Like, yep, pastor, we remember what you're talking about. And so, uh, after the apostles go taking the gospel, uh, throughout Jerusalem, you find that the leaders of the uh, Jew, the leaders of the Jews, the religious leaders, are trying to stunt the apostles at every opportunity. We've seen that uh, there was opposition from outside of the church. There was opposition from inside of the church with Ananias and Sapphira. And then uh, we saw that none of it could could stop what the Holy Spirit was doing through believers. Right, we saw that. Good. And so as we kept going forward, we saw that the attacks from these religious leaders kept getting more and more and more severe. And the last week that we were in the book of Acts together, Acts chapter 7, they actually take the life of one of the early members of the church, or one of the first members of the early church, and that is Stephen. If you remember, Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. Remember there was a problem where some of the widows weren't getting food like they should, and the church appointed these men who were Hellenistic Jews, appointed them to feed these widows and make sure that they got good taken care of. Well, I bring up Stephen because we're at the tail end of his death. I want you to see in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. So, so Stephen dies in verse 60 of chapter 7. It says, he falls on his face. He cries out with a loud voice. Do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And this moves us into Acts chapter 8 verse 1. It says that there was a man named Saul there. Saul is the same one that you know of as Paul. Pretty soon in the book of Acts, this Saul, who's persecuting the church, is going to have a confrontation with Jesus Christ. Saul is going to be saved, and the Lord's going to change his name, and his life changes overnight. He goes from a persecutor of the church, killing individuals and dragging them off, to the biggest proponent for Christ maybe ever. Now, you're in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day... A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women he would put them in prison. So I'm going to back up just for a second. While they were stoning Stephen, 
Saul didn't stone Stephen. Saul was standing off to the side, and the men who stoned Stephen took their coats off so they could throw rocks harder, and they gave their coats to a man named Saul, and he watched the coats. And it seems that the text says that he was standing there giving hearty agreement to watching this man of God, Stephen, be killed for for trying to persuade the Jewish religious leaders to believe in Christ. Now, says that on that day, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So as we've been following in the book of Acts so far, the early church has stayed located in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus tells them, stay in Jerusalem till you receive the Holy Spirit. Then you'll be my witnesses other places. Well, time hasn't passed so much for them to branch out outside of Jerusalem. So they're being faithful. They're preaching the word in Jerusalem. And then there's a man named Stephen, shares the gospel with the religious leaders, and he is described... As a hot coal ember. And the religious leaders try to stamp him out. And what happens is instead of stamping out that ember. That fire spreads to different regions of Israel. And it says that on that day great persecution broke out. And then the, the believers got scattered to Judea and Samaria. And what did Acts chapter 1-8 say was going to happen? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And so them killing Stephen, they think they're getting rid of the problem. And what that does is it just makes the fire spread that much more because the persecution drives believers out of Jerusalem. Now they're being witnesses in the rest of Israel as well. So if I was going to put a map up on the screen, right, this is a little interaction time. How many of you would be able to draw a circle around where Judea is? Anybody? We've got one volunteer, two volunteers. How many people would be able to draw a circle around where one skittish, two and a half volunteers? You would say, let them go first though, right? (laughs) Let them go first. Yeah, that's where it is. Uh, And so then where would you draw a circle? Would you feel comfortable drawing a circle around where Samaria is? Anybody? One, two and a half, three and a half, four, maybe so. Would you be willing to draw a circle around where Galilee is? Any other takers? A few? Some of you are flipping to the maps just in case you're asked to do such a thing. So this is pretty interesting. This is something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. You don't talk about geography a lot. But in Jesus' day, the, the nation of Israel as a whole, the whole land of Israel, is broken up into about three providences. You have Judea in the south. Judea sounds a lot like Judah, right? Judea is a Greek word for Judah. So that whole area in the south, Judea. That area in the middle... Is going to be Samaria. It's just kind of a, a block in the middle. It doesn't, it may not go all the way to the coast and it may not go all the way to the river. It was possible for Jews to walk around Samaria because they didn't like the Samaritans. Okay? So it doesn't encompass, it's not three perfect lines. And then your area called Galilee are the northern areas where uh, the tribe of Ephraim and those areas would be. So Israel's broken up into three sections. You've got uh, uh, Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, and then Galilee on the top. Anybody feel comfortable drawing a line around where Jerusalem is? Jerusalem's at the top part of Judea. And so if you're in Judea, excuse me, if you're in Judea at the northernmost area, you're at Jerusalem where the temple was. And then if you went 40 miles north of there, you would be right in the heart of Samaria where we're going to read a story about Jesus who's walking through Samaria. He's in an area about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. And that's going to make kind of the rest of the text make sense. But I wanted you to see that now... They've been staying in Jerusalem. Now they're spreading out to Judea and they're spreading out to Samaria. So when Jesus is in Jerusalem and he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then you'll be my witnesses in 
Judea and Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the world. And so Jesus is telling them that, listen, through the Holy Spirit, you're going to have the power to take the gospel everywhere. And the killing of Stephen is what begins the taking of the gospel everywhere. And I want you to see that when persecution starts, you don't have the church get together and say, okay, um, this person, this person, and this person are pretty good with the gospel. Let's support them and send them out as missionaries. What happens is the church, the normal church, it's normative for all of the people in the church to be taking the gospel wherever they go. And so it's not missionaries, deacons, elders being scattered. It's church members, regular church members, rank and file church members that are getting spread out throughout the ends of the earth, and they're taking the gospel with them, and the gospel is primarily primarily spreading through normal Christians. Following me? Not not paid professional Christians, if there's even such a thing, right? It's regular folks taking the gospel everywhere. Now we keep going. It says, that day, great, this is the middle of verse 1, great day, great day. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They're scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles are holding fast in, in, the, in the, the main church, okay? And everybody else is going out from it. But the apostles, they're sticking together right there in Jerusalem. And then in verse 2, listen to this. Some devout men. It doesn't say that these are devout Christ-following men. It says devout men. Oftentimes, Luke will talk about devout men who are devout Jewish men. This seems that he's talking about devout men who would have been a part of the Hellenistic synagogue that Stephen was a part of. So Stephen's a Hellenistic Jew prior to conversion. And now you have these devout men who are burying Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. So there's a book called the Mishnah. It's the oral traditions of the Jewish church. The Mishnah prohibits loud weeping over criminals that have been killed. Saul, according to the Jews, is a criminal who's being killed as a heretic. And these Hellenistic Jews are making a public renouncing that this man should not have died, and they weep loudly over his body, which is condemned by their own oral tradition. And so what I want you to see is that that there's these men in Jerusalem who are trying to share the faith with other men in Jerusalem who are lost. And so the apostles and the early church, they seem to be trying to make big headway to lead the leaders of the Jewish church to faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says over and over again, he came first for the Jew, then the Gentile. And the best way for all of the Jews to come to faith is to get the leadership of the Jewish group on board so that they can lead everyone else on board. And so what it could have been if the leaders would have gotten on board is a top-down revival would have been simple if the high priest and the priest would have come to faith in Christ. But instead what happens is a grassroots movement through the apostles, through regular folks, and that's how the gospel ends up spreading. So you have these apostles that are staying in Jerusalem trying to reach the Jewish leadership. And then in verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And this sounds exactly like what Saddam Hussein did pre-Gulf War. Saddam Hussein would send his men into people's houses in Iraq. They would say, do you want to join the Iraqi army? And if the answer is yes, now you're in the army. If the answer is no, they kill the people in the house. 
That's what happened in Iraq prior to Gulf War. He was trying to build his army. Saul is going around house to house, ravaging the church. This word ravaging is the same word that you would use of a wild beast tearing something to pieces. So think about what a wolf or a coyote is going to do to a piece of meat. Ravaging. This is what Saul is doing. Right? This is the same word that would be used in ancient literature of a town that's been ransacked by an enemy army. The town is ravished. Everything of value is stolen and plundered, and you're left with nothing left. And that's what Saul is doing to the early church. So just want to set the landscape for what's going on for you here within Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding areas. Now in verse 4. Now, we're going to cover all the way through verse 17, but we're not going to... We're not going to look around every corner. There's one main deal. There's one main issue that I want to deal with. And the main issue that we want to deal with is the Holy Spirit. So everyone who's been saved so far in the book of Acts receives the Holy Spirit. Following me? Still give me a head nod. The early church, when pent on the day of Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire come on their head and each of them begin speaking in foreign tongues. Right? There's a charismatic movement that says that in order for you to, in order to prove that you're saved, you have to speak in tongues also, right? That you have a baptism and then you have a baptism of the Holy Spirit, then you speak in tongues. Like some of you have heard this sort of thing before. Give me head, your head nods are less and less assertive. So everybody's heard it. Nobody wants to admit it. That's what's going on here. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through how these believers receive the Holy Spirit and why it's different here than most of the other places in scripture. Here we go. Verse 4 of chapter 8. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. This is the same Philip who got called to be one of the early servants of the church, exactly like Stephen did. He's one of the first seven. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. This is all the way through verse eight. And so we've talked about this before, gang. We've talked about that when the gospel goes into uncharted territory, usually for the first time, it's accompanied by signs and wonders, even today. So signs and wonders initially accompany the gospel until the written word is there and they can read the word for themselves. Give me a head nod. We've talked about this before. Okay, good deal. And so we go on all the way through the end of verse eight. And so this is normal. Philip's doing some signs and wonders, unclean spirits are being cast out. And if you remember, Jesus even said when he was on this earth that don't be amazed at this. One day you'll do greater things than I've done. And so now you have all of these apostles and these members of the early church as they're taking the gospel out. They're doing great things exactly like Jesus did. And the gospel is going forth and forth and forth. Then it says in verse 9, Now there was a man named Simon who was formerly who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. 
Are you following what's going on here? Philip's gone into Samaria, an area that doesn't have the gospel. An area that is, is divided from the rest of Israel. It's an area where there's all sorts of mixed marriages going on. And just so you know a little bit more about this area of Samaria. When Assyria came down, just like Isaiah prophesied, when Assyria came in and ransacked Israel, Israel was split into two pieces. There was Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Ten tribes in Israel, two tribes in Judah. Assyria comes in and wipes out all of Israel. Assyria takes all of the intelligent people from Israel, all of the people who are going to make the country great, and he removes them. That was not a pun, by the way. Did not mean to make that a pun at all. Uh, some of you will laugh on the way home. Uh, that was an accident. And so he, he removes all of those people. I can't even concentrate now. <laughs> he removes all of those people, and he takes, especially from the capital city, he takes a lot of the nationalistic Jews and he takes them to Assyria. And then he takes Assyrians and he relocates them in the capital city, Samaria of Israel. And so now you have not just a bunch of nationalistic Jews that could re revolt against Assyria. Now you have a mixed group of people who are not going to be able to formally organize themselves and revolt back against Assyria. It's a way to squash nationalistic pride, right? So what happens is, is that this area of Samaria, these people intermarry with each other, and now you have a mixed Jewish race, which the rest of the Jews, who are pure Jews, frown upon. You also have, when you have mixed marriages like this of two different religions, you begin to have what's called a synchronistic religion. Okay, where the people worship gods from Assyria and then you have Jews who are worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. They begin to intermingle all of these. And what you have is a train wreck of religion happening in Samaria. Okay, so keep that in mind as we read through the rest. Now it says in verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. So the apostles hear that this guy named Philip has gone to Samaria. He's preaching the gospel. People are believing and being baptized in the name of Jesus. The apostles find out about this and they travel to see Philip and the rest of the people who had received the word of God. Listen to what it says. Verse 14 again. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began, this is Peter and John, then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And so just an initial reading through the book of Acts, you think there's, okay, so maybe it's possible for people to get saved and then there's a follow-up laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit. That's what's taught in a lot of charismatic movements. And I want you to see why this happens and why this is different. Let's go back to the book of John and go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is going to make this whole thing make sense. Next week, what we'll end up talking about is what's the deal with this man named Simon? What's going on with Simon, this guy who's a magician? You'll read more about that as you go on in the book of Acts. But now we're in John chapter 4. This is verse 3. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. Most, at the well. Here's the story. Chapter 4, verse 3. He, Jesus, left Judea. Now you know where Judea is, right? He left the southernmost area of Israel. And 
he left Judea and he went away again into Galilee. And so now, based on what you know, you know if he's leaving, uh, if he's leaving Judea and he's going to Galilee, he's got to walk through where? Samaria. Man, you guys are excellent. He left Judea, verse 3, and he went away, away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, if you notice, Jesus is having a spiritual conversation with her, and this spiritual conversation is flying right over her head. Listen to this. Jesus answered and said to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He's speaking spiritually. Verse 15, she answers physically again. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So he realizes at this point. He realized before, but, but he knows that he's speaking spiritually. She only has a mind to understand physical things and they are missing each other in conversation. Right. And so now he begins to speak physically to her and he's going to show her not just about the spirit that comes to life in you like living water, but he's going to show her her sin and he's going to get her to where she needs to be through talking about sin, something that she's going to understand. The woman said to him, sir, verse 15, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to drink. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, now she gets it right now. She, Jesus is talking physically and she understands exactly where she is. And Jesus has just with those eyeballs of fire, just seen right through her body into the depths of her soul. Right. And he is, he has he is talking straight to her in a language that she understands. And now she says, the woman said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Okay, this is Mount Gerizim. This is important, big time. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, that's you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You realize what she's got going on here? She's confused. She's a woman who's caught in sin. And she doesn't know which way is up. My father's told me that we should worship on this mountain where she would have been standing as Mount Gerizim around the time of Alexander the Great. One of the high priests built a temple to worship God on Mount Gerizim in the area of Samaria. 
right? This mixed religion is going on, and they built a place specifically to worship. Mount Gerizim is a, is a special place because that's where Jacob's well is. And so the people over time, the Samaritans, who don't have anything to do with the Jews, they've just developed their own way to worship God. Also, you go back to Ezra chapter 4. In Ezra chapter 4, when Ezra is rebuilding the temple, some of these people from Samaria come to Ezra, and they say, let us help you rebuild. And Ezra turns them away. And says, no, this isn't for you to do. This is for us to do. Okay? And so you can see where there's a rift. You're building, rebuilding the temple of God. Someone wants to help. You tell them no. And now they're eternally offended. Right? Right? You guys ever had neighbors who have gotten eternally offended? Yes, you have. You have. You know you have. So this is what's going on here. So the Samaritans just started worshiping the Lord at this temple, which was destroyed. Now we keep going. And Jesus said to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is not being snarky here with this woman. Jesus is explaining to this woman exactly what she wants to know. She says, listen, you worship here, we worship there. And Jesus says, listen, you worship what you don't know. Jesus just tells the woman, you don't understand. You're worshiping what you don't know. We worship what we know. Then he tells her that salvation is going to come from the Jews. Then this woman goes and gets people from the town and says, look, this man has told me everything that I've ever done. And these people put their faith in Jesus to follow him, right? You got to keep in mind that this period of Jesus's ministry through the book of Acts is a transitional time in the gospel, right? Jesus hasn't died for sins and been resurrected from the dead yet for people to receive the Holy Spirit. Not yet. And so Philip goes into Samaria and he's talking to people who are readily accepting Jesus, Right? Samaritans who are confused. They don't understand. It wouldn't be healthy for these Samaritans to have the Holy Spirit yet. Because they would think that salvation may come from Mount Gerizim. Jesus tells them, listen, a day and an hour is coming where you will be given the gospel through the Jews. And so it makes perfect sense in order not to have a Samaritan church and a Jerusalem church, that you have one church that gets its start through Jesus and the apostles, and that is the only church. And so, check this out. Go back over to the book of Acts. You have Philip, who's a Hellenistic Jew. He goes and takes the gospel. And I'm going to read this in Acts chapter 8, verse 14, one more time for you. So everyone in Samaria believes what Philip's telling them. This is chapter 8, verse 14. And it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began, Peter and John, laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So I want you to see that this Holy Spirit is delayed in Acts chapter 8 so that there can be unity in the early church and everyone can know exactly where the Holy Spirit of God is coming from and exactly where salvation is coming from. It comes from the resurrected Jesus Christ 
through Peter and the apostles, and it's making its way throughout the ends of the earth. And there is no confusion in the church at Samaria as to where this power from the Holy Spirit is coming from. You following me? It's not divided at all. And Jesus lays it out perfectly during his ministry. And so you've got to believe that while Jesus is sharing with the woman at the well and he stays in that town of Samaria for two days, that he's teaching them exactly what he wants them to understand. And so Jesus has been tilling the soil and sends Philip to Samaria and Samaria, excuse me, and Samaria accepts exactly what Philip is preaching. And so you see how God has done all of this work Philip's merely being an obedient vessel to what God has him to do. And the town of Samaria receives the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And there is zero confusion and 100% unity in God's early church. That's pretty worshipful, wouldn't you say? I think so also. Next week, what we'll talk about, we'll talk about more about this man, Simon. Simon wants to be able to give the Holy Spirit out. And you'll see that even though he believed and was baptized in the name of Jesus, Peter rebukes him as a lost soul. We'll talk a little bit more about what's going on with him. But for right now, I want to pray. And I want to pray that uh, that we would, just like the town of Samaria, that we would move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and in unity. Because that's what Jesus has set us up to do. So let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that when we open your word... We rightly divide it, that it makes perfect sense. Lord, I pray first that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that today would be the day that they call on you to forgive forgive them of their sins. And Father, I pray that you would forgive them and give them your Holy Spirit so that they can live this life in power. Lord, I also pray that you would bless our church. Lord, I pray that you would help us to model the early church, and that's walk in unity. Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be able to do that. God, we love you. We pray that you would do great things that only you are capable of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with us for a hymn of invitation. Hey, it's good to see you guys again this week. Uh, pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would be active in each of our lives. And I want to remind you that if you are helping with Vacation Bible School as a leader, uh, to meet my wife in this back room right behind the, uh, the sound booth here uh, for a brief meeting. Oh, I've been corrected. Right here down front for a quick meeting. And uh, just so you know, my wife has company coming over for lunch. And so this five-minute meeting will be five minutes because uh, we have a lot of hungry folks coming over. So uh, that's supposed to be funny for you guys not laughing, but... Uh, that's all right. Maybe you'll laugh about that on the way home, too. Anyways, good to see you. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. And I'm going to ask Dr. Tarkington if you would do us the honor.